Nation, a Motorsports Analytics podcast. I am Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of MotorsportsAnalytics.com. Episode 6, David, that could only mean one thing. The Mark Martin edition of Positive Regression. Because when I think number 6, what else do you think about in NASCAR? Number 6 is Mark Martin, one of those 90s drivers that is just, I mean, Hall of Famer in so many in so many ways. And of course, the number 6 is associated with Mr. Martin. What is the first thing you think of when you think of Mark Martin? Uh, Mark Martin, this is, I hate to say this, I do, but for all the winning he did, what I do think of is that he is the biggest guy, he is the biggest name without a title. And I, I feel so bad to say that because of all the winning he did and of how good he was and what a rival he was to guys like Rusty and Dale, but he, he is the best driver in history, I feel, without a title. And uh, that stinks that I think of him that way, but he's got plenty of trophies to fall back on. See, and I think that's a, a common answer uh, among NASCAR fans. And I think of you as smart, despite what I saw from you uh, this week during the professional uh, wrestling matches of uh, booing. <laughs> but but uh, I, I will say this uh, about Mark. Uh, he was a five-time IROC champion. He's the only one of those in history. But let's, let's give him a, a statistical appreciation befitting a champion. His career production rating over average, or PROA, as I refer to it, uh, which is a calculation of his per year production against the average for each driver's age, uh, is plus 1.379. What does this mean? That is a very good rating, but don't take my word for it. Here's a frame of reference. Tony Stewart's career PROA is plus 1.027. We can take this to mean that Mark Martin's career's worth of production proved better than that of three-time champion Tony Stewart. Uh, now, we think of championships, we invariably think of Jimmy Johnson. Uh, his career, P. Roa, plus 1.614. So he has them both beat. Uh, however, his season of peak production came in 2007 when he won 10 times and scored a peer of 4.458. Now, Alan, I'll put you on the spot. How old do you think Mark Martin was during his season of peak production? Well, I mean, if, if you listen to Motorsports Analytics, you know a driver peaks at age 39. I don't know if he is your average driver, but I'll say, even though he had a great end of his career, I'll put up something around age 38 or 39. You are a man after my own heart. He was indeed 39. Uh, that came in 1998, and his age 39 season was epic. He won seven times, earned uh, his career high in laps led, and registered a peer of 4.697, which happened to be more productive than the peak season of Jimmy Johnson. Uh, Mark Martin, not a NASCAR champion, but certainly an analytics darling, a more productive career than Tony Stewart, a bigger peak season than Jimmy Johnson. This is why I love positive regression. How many podcasts <laughs> out there are going to start with a career retrospective of Mark Martin? But that's what we do here. Something uh, something we don't always do, and you won't expect us to do it every week, is, is, is a review, a recap of what happened uh, in the race before. Obviously, last week was Atlanta. Brad Keselowski got a win. Two things I will point out, David, though, is one is two weeks into the season, we have drivers that had long droughts or didn't win at all last year, Denny Hamlin and now Brad Keselowski, who have already won in 2019. So storylines are intriguing there already. And then uh, look back to Atlanta, just the second and third place finishers. 
uh, Martin Truex Jr. and Kurt Busch. What we don't have anymore is Furniture Row Racing, but I think when you look at second and third place, we still see the remnants, obviously with Martin Truex Jr. and Cole Pern, but also with, with now in Ganassi and Kurt Busch, Furniture Row, their footprint is still there and still running toward the front of the field. Yeah, they're no longer here, but they are straight killing the 2019 season. <laughs> Former lead engineer Jeff Curtis uh, was at Furniture Row. He's now the head of engineering at Chip Ganassi Racing, and and Ganassi turned in the fourth and fifth fastest cars last Sunday at Atlanta for Kyle Larson and Kurt Busch, respectively. I know at the end of the race, Kurt Busch uh, pointed to his team's strategy as one of the reasons that he was out front towards the end of the race, but he had race-long speed all along, uh, and, and Larson looked borderline untouchable until the final stage. Now, Martin Truex and Cole Pern, uh, no surprise here. They produced the fastest car at Atlanta. Uh, to me, it felt as if they ran second the entire race. I've, I've got to assume that's annoying if, if you're in the <laughs> in the race car driving business. Uh, they did have the day's top average running position. But more importantly, I think they're in a position to make a serious championship run, which I know is early. I'm comfortable saying that. It, to me, that's pretty incredible considering that the number 19 team at Joe Gibbs Racing uh, wasn't also ran last year. Uh, Truex brings with him a plus 50 position passing surplus to a team that endured a minus 47 position passing surplus uh, with Daniel Suarez. Uh, that's a swing of 97 positions. If the 19 cars average running spot remains the same, I don't believe it will. It's a difficult to turn a mid-pack team into a championship contender in the span of one offseason. But Joe Gibbs Racing did it, uh, taking full advantage of the Furniture Row fallout. I can't really recall seeing anything like this. Alan, have have you? I mean, is there is there anything that comes to mind that is even similar? No, I mean, just because the... the, the... Furniture Row falling apart, if you will, or just, you know, folding as a team for, for the reasons that it did. We don't see that happen, right? I mean, not, not a team that's on top of the world, not a team that has just won the championship and is still winning races. Uh, that, that felt unprecedented. And I can't, I can't name another time where something like that has happened, uh, where all this, you know, where it's a good quality team capable of winning races. And suddenly this talent field is just available for the pickings. However, you know, however free their agency indeed was. I don't know how far Martin Truex or Cole Pern were able to uh, look at elsewhere, but it does make me think of, uh, it's not apples to apples, but I think of Ray Evernham when he was with Jeff Gordon and they were doing all their things together over at Hendrick. And then all of a sudden he brings his brain power over to Dodge and faster than uh, probably a lot of people thought, and certainly myself, the success they had early, uh, certainly there's, there's going to be growing pains when you start a new team, but the brain power Ray Evernam had and the talent he was able to bring with him and start over at Dodge and the success they had early, it, it kind of reminds me of that. To me, I know it's not apples to apples, but that, that was one thing that popped in my head. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there, you you never see uh, this amount of brain power, uh, a glut of brain power um, hit the open market in this way. We kind of assumed uh, what to expect from JGR with this uh, new 19 team. I mean, it, it, it does not look like the 19 team of 2018, um, but the impact that Curtis has had over at Ganassi already. You know, last episode, we questioned what 
uh, the new rules package is going to do to Kyle Larson? Would it would it affect him from having an impact on Atlanta, the kind of impact we're used to seeing from him? Uh, it didn't. He was really fast. And even though he didn't get the finish that he probably feels he deserves, he can take solace in knowing that he's got a, a fast race car, which is something that he hasn't always had in years past. We we might be we might be getting uh, some maximum Larson as this year unfolds. And same thing for Kurt Busch. Just looking up the stats for the one car last year, they had, they were 16th in Central Speed, the 16th fastest car over the course of a year. Uh, Jamie McMurray and that crew had eight top tens the entire season, and only two of them were on traditional mile-and-a-half tracks. And again, we don't want to do too many hot takes off one damn race in Atlanta, but let, let's. what we saw was the one car in the top 10 for most of the day on speed with Kurt Busch behind the wheel, and he comes home third. That's a good start for all this change that's happening. And as we started to say, some of that is from the, the footprint of Furniture Row. And of course, the cup cars weren't the only uh, cars on track in Atlanta. They had the triple header and we're two weeks into the Xfinity Series season as well. And uh, look, let's be honest, kind of a forgettable race right in Daytona. Uh, we just didn't see the action develop like a lot of people wanted to, especially for a plate race. Michael Annette getting the win there. And then Christopher Bell goes out and puts a spanking on him. Uh, in Atlanta, I, I know some people get mad at when the, the cup interlopers come down and, and always got angry when Kevin Harvick would come whoop the field. But I, I think you could argue that Christopher Bell whooped the field harder than Kevin Harvick ever did at Atlanta as a cup driver. Uh, but there are some good things to talk about. I mean, we expect Christopher Bell to win races down there. Uh, I want to just give a shout out to Jeffrey Earnhardt. Uh, career best on Saturday in the uh, Xfinity race there. And of course, we saw him lead laps and Earnhardt leading laps and doing well in Daytona. David, just one of those, I don't know if the, if the stats back this up or what he's done in lesser equipment, but I feel like what we're seeing is one of those stories where a driver gets the opportunity in better equipment and is able to show off his talent and it is therefore better recognized because he is in a fast car at the front of the field where again, where if you take a 20th place car and finish 14th with it every week, you don't get the same love and accolades, even though you have the same amount of talent. I feel like we're, we're talking about Jeffrey Earnhardt for the right reasons after these first two weeks. Yeah, for uh, for motorsportsanalytics.com, I'm actually working on a story that'll run in the next two weeks, uh, searching for the next Ross Chastain. And I think Earnhardt is a good candidate uh, for that designation. We'll have to keep an eye on him, and I'm going to have to do some digging, but I feel comfortable in assuming the car he had last Saturday at Atlanta, uh, the sixth fastest in the race per central speed, uh, was the fastest car he's ever had in a single race since he cracked the NASCAR National Series hierarchy back in 2009. A lot of fans making some noise about an Earnhardt driving a Toyota Supra. I don't, I don't see the big deal in that. I, I think I just see a, a young man getting a, an opportunity. Um, I do think it's interesting to see what he's able to do with it. JGR has been the gold standard in recent years uh, for the Xfinity Series. So no excuses for Jeffrey Earnhardt uh, moving forward, but that's probably the way he wants it, if I had to imagine. Yeah, you just hope he gets a, a full-time ride because I don't think he's back in the car until Texas. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it, though. How about you? you? When you look at the Xfinity Series, the prospects coming up, uh, what, what stands out? For me, the hottest program in the Xfinity Series right now belongs to Richard Childress Racing. Uh, their number two car 
ranked second in central speed at both Daytona and Atlanta with Tyler Reddick behind the wheel. Uh, and he was in position to win at Atlanta. He was cutting into Christopher Bell's lead before the final caution came out. Uh, and then a pit road setback took them out of the running completely. But this speed surge that they're experiencing dates back to last year when RCR produced the fastest car in the entire Xfinity Series playoffs uh, with Daniel Hemrick and crew chief Danny Stockman. Uh, Both of those gentlemen have moved on to the Cup Series. Randall Burnett now oversees uh, RCR's uh, Alpha program, as we'll call it, in the Xfinity Series. And it's far more competitive than what the results show. It's been a while, Alan, since we've seen RCR flex its muscle in this series. I know they won championships with both Clint Boyer and Austin Dillon, but those titles came with a combined win total of one during those seasons. (laughs) I I, I think back to the 06 season, Kevin Harvick, as you mentioned, never a dull moment from him in the Xfinity series, but that year he won nine times, won the championship off the cuff. That was the last time I can recall this program having such unimpeachable speed. I like the I like what Tyler Reddick's doing this year. Just I like the cut of his jib, if that's the saying. Because the, <laughs> la, you know, last year it kind of uh, comes out of I don't I mean, yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere and wins Homestead. So he's the champion, and then all of a sudden he's switching teams. I know it was announced before Homestead, but it's like, why? Why are you switching teams? What are you doing? And, and then you would I, I don't know. Maybe I expected a a. a a decrease in performance, but, and now I listen to David Smith and he's uh, Tyler Reddick's doing damn well over at RCR. They got a lot of speed and he's not afraid to, you know, clap back at Bubba on Twitter. I just like, I, I like the attention and noise that he's making. It's kind of funny. In, in truth be told, he needs this. The, uh, the the championship last year masked a lot of deficiencies for Tyler Reddick. Uh, he actually had a sub-600 peer going into Homestead. He wins the race, and it's uh, a, a peer above 800. Uh, looks a little bit more competent, but still a bit disappointing. So I think he has a vendetta of some sorts. He needs to answer a lot of questions, and I know we'll talk more about him in next week's episode, which is purely going to be based on uh, the top NASCAR Cup Series prospects. But while I have that on the mind, are you giving out nicknames now to prospects? What what happened at, at, at Atlanta? Uh, what, what, oh. who, who is the sauce and what is going on? Are you and talking why was about, this in my Twitter feed? Are you talking about the sauce? Yes. Um, what? Yeah, this was this, this got out of hand. You had people talking about it on TV. How, how did you how did you how did this happen? That was that part was unplanned. All right. Anyway, so, I, you know, I cover the truck series and it, it's a fun job. I'm down there on pit road. You look at the entry list and I, I've heard of this. I've heard of Anthony Alfredo, young driver. I've heard of him before, obviously, but this was his first uh, big race. This was his first national series race in the truck series. And um and he's from Connecticut, so obviously I have a bias toward Connecticut drivers. But the name, Anthony Alfredo, the first moment I heard it, I'm like, that is one of the, the best racing names I've ever heard. And I don't know. I was just sitting there in the media center next to my new teammate, Bob Pockers. <laughs> what a guy he is. And I go, Bob, Anthony Alfredo is in this race. I'm going to nickname him the sauce and see if it catches on. And if it does, you know, I'll license it and make so much money. Right. And Bob looks at me and goes, I don't know. Sounds kind of cheesy and like waits for me. You know, I was like, that's a great pun, Bob. So, but yeah, so, so the sauce, and I think I tweeted about it and it was uh ha ha laugh, laugh. It was funny. And then, uh, during practice, Vince Welch talks about it on television and kind of picks up a little more steam there. And this was, it just, things kind of got out of hand. Then I find out 
Uh, I know Anthony Alfredo was a short tracker, and I know short trackers are very passionate about uh, these things and where their drivers come from. But I find out Mr. Alfredo already had a nickname, and it was Fast Pasta. And then also, all so now we have dueling nicknames, at least in my head. Like I, I didn't, I never knew about Fast Pasta, so I was not trying to start a war. But all of a sudden, we have a war on our hands. No, he already has a nickname, Fast Pasta, and I'm like, I don't know, the sauce is pretty damn good. And I didn't go too hard on Twitter about this, David, but I will share an exclusive positive regression opinion. Oh, God. <laughs> fast Pasta is a terrible nickname. It's not a good nickname. There's nothing fast about pasta. I mean, eat a bunch of pasta and you feel sluggish and it slows down, I feel. So in my head, the sauce is a great nickname and I hope it catches on. And look, if it does, it's because Mr. Young Alfredo uh, will be out there doing good and winning races and maybe it'll catch on. We'll see. It's up to him. Yeah, uh, Stephen A. Kavana here with the uh, the hot take on the positive <laughs> regression podcast. Uh, no, I, I saw a Twitter reply to you that I swear once I was caught up, I willed uh, into existence because Alfredo isn't even a pasta. It's a sauce that can be added to pasta. Yeah. So it, uh, right off the bat, that's an inaccurate nickname. Um, if, if it was playing on uh, an oxymoron theme, like, I don't know, positive regression, then maybe I could get behind it. But this is wholly inaccurate and I can't stand for that. So we'll, we'll do our part to make this Haas happen. Um, but, but for, for Mr. Alfredo, his, his name sort of precedes him. As for his ability, he's got some work to do. Uh, he turned in a negative peer last season in the NASCAR K&N Pro Series East, uh, over 1.2 points worse than the average uh, from a 19-year-old K&N driver. The decision for him to move to trucks right now seems hasty, all things considered. He did end up winning a race last year. It was the back end of a twin bill at South Boston. But as we've noted on this show, uh, wins do not make for a full evaluation. However, we've seen instances in which drivers leave K&N East uh, and uh, after relatively inadequate spells for the truck series and then come into their own in the heavy body equipment. Uh, Noah Gragson, one recent driver who comes to mind. So we need this nickname to work, but we are also going to need uh, Mr. Alfredo to to pull his weight, improve, and then I think we can get a groundswell to eliminate this dumb nickname uh, <laughs> that he's had. But first of all, for the, the whole short track mentality is ridiculous, right? The, Tony Stewart, when he was on short tracks exclusively, was the Rushville Rocket. And when he started winning races and championships in the Cup Series, he anointed himself smoke. Uh, so I don't buy that. We'll we'll see how far we can drive the sauce train into town and see if we can make something of it. Again, it's up to the young man himself to, to determine how successful he is. So we will see, but I will argue the sauce is it, let me just say. All right, we're moving on to Vegas. I'll be flying out there. Let's see, this will post on Thursday, maybe uh, while you're on the plane. While I'm on the plane, maybe you'll be listening to this episode. But uh, another triple header out there out in Las Vegas starts Friday night with the truck race on Fox. On the cup side, obviously, the new, the full 
new rules package will be in effect. Uh, if you caught Jeff Gluck's uh, video of the test out there, uh, maybe you have an idea of what we saw. But David, uh, I don't know if you saw it as well, but uh, there was moment they had they practiced racing, which is something they rarely do. They got a pack of 20 cars together. They did restarts. They ran laps. It seemed like the cars were a lot closer. It seemed like uh, a car could get out to a lead, but one little bobble or mistake and the pack would be all close together again. So a lot of questions. There will be the arrow ducks you have read about and heard about. Uh, a lot, certainly, again, another weekend of a lot of questions going in. So with track position being coveted, David, what what does that mean for pit strategy? Unlike what we saw in Atlanta, similar to Atlanta crew chiefs will stick to what they do know works. We will see some things happen in terms of pit strategy. Uh, last year's race, Martin Truex is, is my example here. He runs 30, 90 lap times before a green flag stop after the stop 29, 90. So if you're looking to jump uh, with a, with a one second fall off, You'll need to pit uh, two laps prior to the car in front of you if you're only one second behind. Uh, now, will we actually see this happen? Outside of trying a contrarian strategy, I don't believe we'll see much short pitting. Long pitting uh, or, or banking on a caution to come out uh, will most likely be the choice strategy of any team looking to be aggressive. And that certainly was the case uh, last year. Maybe the new rules package prompts some crew chiefs to take risks that they otherwise would not have taken in previous years. But one thing to keep in mind, there's also a third option, and that's keeping it right down the middle. Pitting at the moment you need fuel uh, might be the way to go. Rodney Childers had a lot of success with that early last year on Kevin Harvick's behalf. And there wasn't much creative to it. He let other crew chiefs sort of outthink themselves, pitted in the middle of the fuel window. And Kevin Harvick wasn't losing a whole lot of positions. Remember, he had that uh, three race win streak to begin the season. Teams playing a conservative strategy might actually be the pathway to take. And just like last week, like we said, when you there are so many unknowns, maybe you go with what you know. And that can certainly apply to restarts, perhaps. Last week in Atlanta, look, the outside, especially in the truck race, the restarting on the outside lane was awful. It was your death sentence up there. Uh, surprisingly, I don't know, for just the eye test, David, in the last few restarts in the cup race, uh, it wasn't as bad. The, the cars on the outside were able to at least maintain. I don't know what you can attribute that to, but just passing the eye test toward the end of the race, it wasn't as bad, nowhere near as bad as the truck race. But when we look at Las Vegas, what are the, the restart trends out there in terms of where the advantage lies or what teams want to do? Well, it's going to be more feisty than Atlanta. An interesting dynamic at Las Vegas. Uh, last year, the inside groove prevailed in the first race, retaining 25% more often. But the fall race saw the outside groove uh, went out. This is something worth watching. The front row last fall saw retention rates pull even at 50% apiece, which I think is appropriate given that it's Las Vegas, that a restart <laughs> fortune is, is tantamount to a coin flip. But I actually think temperature may be more of a deciding factor here um, than fans might think. The first race last year was ran in March. It was high 50 degree temperatures around race time. Uh, in the fall race, it was high 90s, nearing 100 degrees and a much slicker racetrack. 
Of course, the forecast for this Sunday splits the difference. Uh, 70 degrees and sunny. Again, track position may be in short supply. I'm not sure that that gives us a whole lot of answers on what exactly to expect, other than restarts are going to be very interesting. There's going to be some decision-making that crew chiefs and drivers will have if they're in the lead. Uh, And I like that throughout the race. I like the potential for, you know, 50-50 success, no matter what lane you you choose, because that's something we didn't always see in Atlanta. And then it leads to those stupid pit road games, which I don't like. To be penalized for being second instead of third, I I don't like any track that does that. So we'll have more potential for uh, uh, equality or maybe just it's not a death sentence to have the outside lane. It sounds like at least uh, at Las Vegas. So I, I can appreciate that. Um, speaking of again, Vegas, we have seen Brad Keselowski went out there uh, a few times before, and now he comes in as last week's race winner. Uh, what are his prospects of making it two in a row, David? I mean, this will certainly be the popular narrative, uh, heading into the weekend, but this is a narrative that may have some validity. Keselowski has won at Las Vegas in cold temperatures. He's won there, uh, in warm temperatures. He won there last fall when it was approaching hundred degrees. Uh, He is, as a driver, malleable, which is to say he can't really be pigeonholed to a certain style. He's not a a restart specialist or a long run specialist. He just kind of is. Uh, Two years ago, he lacked good peripheral stats and waltzed into the championship four solely on good central speed. Last year, he was a top five restarter in both grooves. So just uh, the difference a year makes, he's an elite restarter after a year where his numbers in that regard were pretty mundane. I like to think of Las Vegas as a track capable of having different identities, having races that break in a multitude of ways. Uh, Case in point, Vegas's two races last year saw four and 10 restart attempts respectively. Keselowski is the kind of chameleon who tends to succeed regardless of what he's able to do well or however a race breaks. Uh, This track and this driver uh, sort of feel made for each other in that sense. Uh, Regardless of the unknowns uh, brought forth by the new rules package, I'd expect him to have a good showing just because that's kind of what he does. And this is sort of the track that puts that on a pedestal. Again, if we're going with what we know, we know Brad Kozlowski is pretty good at Las Vegas. And of course, one of the things we love doing here on Positive Regression is going deep, doing in-depth analysis. And should that help you with your fantasy NASCAR? We hope it does. On that front, we have the first guest in Positive Regression history, David. NASCAR.com writer and, look, fantasy guru, RJ Kraft is joining us here on the podcast. RJ, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I, I feel incredibly honored to be the first guest, so I'm going to set the bar real low for future guests. No, that's, no. That's, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all we're asking for is your help here, because I'm sure a lot of people out there, my, I myself play it with my buddies, but we play NASCAR.com's uh, fantasy live game. And it, it's fun. It, it's just fun to, you know, it, just like playing fantasy football or fantasy anything to when you're watching uh, the sporting event to have something else on the line and uh, something else to think about in terms of, of stats and who's doing what and who's doing well. If you're not familiar with the fantasy live, basically you get to pick five drivers. Uh, as your starting lineup, you have one on the bench that you could replace 
uh, before the end of stage two. And there's a little strategy with how you pick each driver because you can only start each driver 10 times per season. So therefore, there's some strategy there. And uh, RJ, when you're putting together your lineup each week, I mean, you write an article every week for NASCAR.com. What kind of advice are you giving or what should people be looking at when trying to optimize their lineup each week for each different track we go to? I mean, I feel like a lot of it is you're trying to maximize your uses and, and you know, it's, it gets tricky with, a, you know, guys like Kyle Busch or Kevin Harvick, who are by and large pretty much good anywhere. You really want to just maximize as many points as you can get out of them. So with, with a guy like Kyle last week, I, I left him out of Atlanta because his overall history there hasn't been that great. And then he had the, the practice accident and then went to a backup car and, and came from the back and he, he finished sixth. But with Kyle Busch in fantasy, I think I can do better than sixth place finishes out of him, especially when he's so good at a, at a Phoenix or a, or a California or a Martinsville. So I'm really with the big guys, you really want to just maximize where you think they're the best at to try and get as much as you can out of them. All right. That makes sense because yeah, you only have so many Kyle Busch starts in this game and you don't want him finishing 11th because he may go out there and win eight of those 10 potential starts. So, so you had the good guys, we, we could start them at just about any track. Do you have a certain strategy when it comes to say, Oh, I don't know the Daniel Suarez's or Chris Busher's of the world, or what kind of research or advice do you give when writing your, uh, your piece each week for NASCAR.com? Um, well, I like to dive a little deep into some of those guys. Like Suarez was a guy I had my eye on last week, basically because they were running, you know, a similar package to the All Star race. He ran really well in that race uh, last year. Stuart Haas had some great success at Atlanta last year, and they had a good run there uh, this this past weekend. You know, some Busher's a little trickier because you know, the Chevys seem to be a little little behind, with the exception of Elliott and Larson last year. And, and the big wild card that's going to make things really tricky uh, moving forward is the new rules package. I, I think that's, that's something that, that needs to be seen before we can really evaluate, and Las Vegas is going to be quite the litmus test there. Uh, RJ, you, you mentioned the new rules package, and I understand that that's thrown a wrench in the proceedings. I mean, Alan and I have been talking the last two episodes uh, about such things, but it, were you able to see anything uh, after Atlanta, as in like a popular tactic? Uh, did you find that uh, fantasy players were a bit more reticent than usual? The big thing for Atlanta, I know I personally didn't expect a lot to be that much different just because of the, the older surface that tends to favor veterans. I think something I'm kind of eager and, and looking to explore this week, and especially at the mile and a half tracks, the, you know, depending on how this package plays out and if it, it plays out similar to, to what we saw in the test, uh, you know, last month is I think some players, I think there's going to, you're going to be able to dig a little deeper in, into the into the driver lineups, I know I know uh, we saw last week Priest, uh, Busher, and Hemrick spent some considerable time in the top ten, uh, and I know for me personally that intrigued me moving forward because if they're able to do that at a at an older, worn out surface like Atlanta, I, I feel pretty good about what they'd be able to do at something like a Las Vegas with this new package. So I'm not as familiar with fantasy racing, I'm coming to this as a neophyte, and uh, I'll happily take the heat uh, for asking the dumb question. What strategy outside of just 
neglect outside of not setting your roster at all would be ill-advised for those wanting to participate in this. This is, uh, you know, a week to week proposition that, that you need to, to keep up. I know Alan will appreciate this because he was got on me on Twitter a little bit about it, but your roster from the previous week will automatically carry over to the next week. So if you have that forgetful nature, you'll, you'll still have a roster, but you may be using guys you didn't necessarily want to use. Okay, so that would explain why Brendan Gone did so poorly at Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, it's very much so. And RJ, this isn't the only game this year uh, for Fantasy Live. It's not the only game on NASCAR.com. Another intriguing uh, game that NASCAR.com has started is a props challenge. And yes, get, you know, digging deeper and doing your research and listening to positive regression, it may help you in some of these picks. But uh, tell us a little bit about this new props challenge because it's intriguing to look back and pick 10 different things that could or could not happen in this race. Correct. So you've got, uh, we'll have 10 different, it resets. First thing is, is if you're the type of person that forgets to play fantasy every week, props challenge is probably a little more tailor made for you and that it resets every week. And it's just a leader, a weekly leaderboard. So there's no running tally. Like if you get all 10 props, like right one week, and then you get six right the next week, like you're not running, your running tally is not 16. You would just be scored for the week. And then you, We'll have different props like uh, over under on lead changes or will a certain driver finish in the top five or you know, kind of an either or proposition on a one driver versus another driver in terms of, of who will finish higher. Uh, and you're just trying to to assess as much as you can to get the, the highest score possible. You don't necessarily have to answer every question. Could leave one or two blank, but but we've seen in the first two weeks – uh, that we've had a couple 10 out of 10s. So if you want to win the the promotional gift card prize from the NASCAR shop, you, you probably should answer all 10. One of them was not me last week. I can assure you of that. <laughs> I came uh, close. I, I missed on the lead changes at Atlanta. Quickly, is there anything, is there any one prop you're looking at for Las Vegas? I am intrigued with, will the same driver win stage one and stage two? Vegas has produced that exact result in the two spring races, it did not produce it last year. So I'm intrigued, especially with the new package, to see if we, if we have the same guy running up front at the end of stage one and stage two. My initial thought is we won't. Based on past history, it, it's certainly a possibility. Good stuff. And anybody can find RJ's work on Twitter. If you, I'm sure he posts his links up there, of course, at craftdaddy85. That's K-R-A-F-T, daddy85. And RJ, each week, uh, your fantasy stuff, when does that go up on the website? Uh, so we'll have the Fantasy Fastlane, uh, which is kind of my written analysis of the, the weekend ahead. Uh, that'll post on Fridays. And then we'll usually have an update either Saturday night or, or Sunday morning. And then uh, there's also a, a podcast that Steve Letart has started uh, that I'm a contributor on that usually posts on Thursdays. Well, we appreciate it. Hopefully, uh, we'll take your advice and people will compare your advice. Also, listen to Positive Regression and have the ultimate fantasy team. RJ, <laughs> we appreciate you being the first guest ever on Positive Regression. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Alan and David. Really appreciate it. All right. Be yes, well. Sir. And that'll do it for episode six of Positive Regression. Of course, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. 
try to leave a rating or a review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility and your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you have questions, we want to answer them right here on the podcast. So put David to work with all your research inquiries. Follow us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G pod. And of course, we will return next week Listen to this, a deluxe edition of Positive Regression. It's part of Prospect Week on motorsportsanalytics.com. David will reveal his top 75 NASCAR Cup prospects for 2019. Next week's episode will include analysis and of a bunch of up-and-coming young drivers. This is what you told us you wanted, and we are giving it to you. You do not want to miss it. You will not be disappointed. It's going to be a big week next week on Positive Regression. As always, thank you for listening to us. If you're listening to this uh, Thursday morning, of course, just make sure you watch Fox and FS1 throughout the weekend, starting with the truck race all the way through the end of the cup race. And of course, we appreciate you listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.